podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. It's July the 20th. The most extraordinary football season of our lifetimes is almost at its end. Manchester United will not participate in a behind-closed-doors FA Cup final. It was undoubtedly an odd semi-final. No crowd, no buzz down Wembley Way, no meeting with mates beforehand, but still... Tension, nerves, anticipation and some hope for uh, for a little bit at least. Um, hope for some silverware, but unfortunately United's only hope of the trophy now rests in the UEFA Europa League. There was much to disappoint us at Wembley on Sunday. We'll go through it all. A 19-game unbeaten run ends just at the wrong time. We'll also preview the final two Premier League games of the season in which United should and must secure a top four finish. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, and with me, as always, is Jack Tate. Jack, I just mentioned a top four finish. It's not just an aim, but a necessity for this club, the minimum requirement. But winning trophies is what gives us our our most memorable days as fans. And don't get it wrong, the same is true for for players and managers. On Sunday, everything went wrong. Solskjaer's team selection was shown to be an error. But it was the individual errors of Lindelof, then De Gea and then Maguire, which condemned United to a very, very miserable exit from the FA Cup. One of the most frustrating and angering performances, honestly, that I've seen from Manchester United in a long time. And I think that says quite a lot considering the state that this football club has been in for <laughs> the last almost almost a decade now. Yeah. Um, I think what was just frustrating about it was that you know, we, we lose games and we, we'll always lose games no matter how good we are. And that always frustrates you. But I think what was doubly frustrating about this game was that I think we are we are genuinely a better side than Chelsea, especially in terms of, of our first 11 players. I know that all of them were playing or starting, but we are just as good, if not better than Chelsea. And we were made to look awful and not made to yeah. look awful by Chelsea. We were made to look awful by ourselves. I mean, just yeah. some of the individual mistakes were, I, I mean, just unforgivable and, and the kind of mistakes you wouldn't expect from a team playing in League One, you know, yeah. let alone a team fighting for an FA Cup final and a Champions League spot. Yeah, I think... I think, And I think that was just why it was so frustrating. Yeah, I think it, it was a fact. It was a very self-inflicted, uh, miserable day. Yeah. It wasn't... Exactly. Because United started badly and, and and even if that was kind of the game plan to soak up some Chelsea pressure, even so, you got to the Eric Bailly injury and we'll we'll talk a bit about that because to be fair, United didn't look like they were playing well, but it was level and it was might might have been part of the game plan. Um until Bailly got injured, then the system changes and very soon after that we concede the the first goal just before half time in in like the 55th minute or something. Um but it was the fact that each of the goals they weren't just mistakes but they came at really bad times. The first one after Bayer had got injured after a long stoppage and then just lost concentration and 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 was really bad because if United had gone into half time level it was a bad performance but you would have backed them to come out and and still go through in the second half and then they come out and you're thinking well uh, a 1-0 uh, trailing 1-0 is really disappointing but they've got a really good chance here there, there, there's some great players to come off the bench in, in Pogba and Martial and Igalo as well and Greenwood and then uh, another terrible mistake and and that was so bad about it um, but we were, we were speaking about this just before we started recording we are going to talk about David De Gea but in a bit because I think it, it's worth remembering that there were so many individual mistakes and uh, it, it would be nice to be to be standing here or sitting here and and talking about something positive but you could run through the entire back five apart from Eric Bailly really 
um, who, who then went off. But Wambasaka had some really sloppy passes, some bad positioning, some poor tackles. Yeah. Maguire's positioning and passing was woeful and his heading at the other end of the pitch was mind-blowingly bad. Lindelof, poor positioning. On... As it has been all season, to be fair. Yeah. I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago, but he misses an unholy amount of chances every week. Yeah, and it's, it's so frustrating as well because... That, that this is another thing about the moments. There were so many good moments for United to score and there weren't kind of clear-cut chances from open play. But from corners, Maguire had four headers that he should have scored probably or at least hit on target and none of them. Yeah. They either went high over the crossbar or, or wide, inexplicably so. Um, and then you move on to the defensive mistakes. Williams with some some loose passes. He was probably the best out of the back four, even though he had a, one of his worst games for United. But Maguire and Lindelof were were complete shambles. At the it back. was a joke at times watching them. It really was. I mean, all the focus predictably after the game was on David De Gea, and we'll get onto that. And I understand why because he was, you know, he rightly deserves to be criticised. But it's our problems in that game were so much bigger than David De Gea. I mean, for the first goal and for the second mm. goal, honestly, it, it, De Gea shouldn't have even been called into action. That should have been dealt with far far earlier than even the yeah. shot getting to De Gea. I mean, for the first goal, it, I, I mean, I, I'll go into more details later, actually, because there's no point getting into it right now. But just the individual mistakes were just catastrophic. It was honestly embarrassing at times. That I, Immediately after the game, I had a... A message from a listener of the podcast saying me yeah. that was an embarrassing performance. And it, it's true. It's one of the only words I could bring myself to describe that performance after the yeah. game. And I, I just want to focus quickly as well on, on Aaron Wan-Bissaka because I think this has been a trend recently. I, you know, don't get me wrong. I think he's a, he's a very, very good player. And defensively, he's added so much to our team this season. But his limitations on the ball are starting to hurt us because... As we've seen against Southampton and Chelsea, when teams press us high, it becomes a real challenge for us to create a good attack that involves Wan-Bissaka getting the ball under pressure. So often it would go from De Gea to Maguire, into Matic to Lindelof and out to Wan-Bissaka and then the attack would break down. He'd either lose it or he'd try a difficult pass or go out for a throw and then we're under pressure again. And the first half against Chelsea and the first 20 minutes against Southampton it happened time and time again and it's yeah. becoming a real issue. I, I think to be fair on the other side as well, um, and, and just before I say this, look, you, you can, for, for, football fans are fickle, um, will we'll of, often be fickle without without kind of meaning to be. This I, I don't think this is a, a sudden comment on these players' overall quality. They have played a lot. They're clearly going to be both physically and mentally fatigued. I think it's important to 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 remind of that there was there were quite a lot of extenuating circumstances, which mean there are not excuses but uh, explanations for a bad performance. The problem was that everyone had a bad performance on the same day. Yeah, exactly. Um, but th- th- this isn't a, a comment on saying, well, Maguire's not, definitely not good enough now. Lindelof is definitely not good enough. We should sell Wan-Bissaka because that, that would be bollocks. But it, it, we have to point out that there are some, some proper weaknesses there. and this game, when they had a bad game altogether, really showed them. But what I was going to say is that on the other side as well, Brandon Williams had a bad game. I think he's done really well since he's come into the first team. But the the one thing that we missed compared with the difference between him and Shaw, and this is interesting I'm saying this because I've, I've thought Shaw's been good recently, but not great. But he's definitely better on the ball than, than Williams is. 
And there were too many times when the ball would go over to Williams like it did with wan and United would find themselves suddenly under pressure again. And then the worst thing about it was they'd give it back to Maguire and he would cause us to be in even more pressure. Yeah. And that was the 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 really sad thing because that's that's the most expensive defender in the world. That's the the one person you think we should be able to rely on him. And we've said this a few times over the past few weeks. We're not able to completely rely on Harry Maguire. Yeah, it- you want the, the you know he's always going to be followed by his price tag and I don't like you hanging that over players I haven't didn't like it when it happened to Pogba I don't like it when it happens to Maguire I think honestly for me it's more the fact that he is the club captain and very clearly at least should be our number one centre back and when you see someone like that who is supposed to be this very commanding and calming presence I think for you know what that is that is his role what he's supposed to be and he just doesn't really offer that at all even on the ball he looks yeah. And I think this was honestly one of the strongest parts of his game at the start of the season was he was so calm on the ball. And he did help us a lot going forward. In recent weeks, I think he's become quite jittery on the ball. And don't get me wrong, it is it, probably and hopefully is just a bad patch of form that every player goes through. And as you said, it's important not to get too carried away because this was unfortunately just a game when all the possible calamities happened at once. And every team has them occasionally. It's a matter of not repeating those mistakes. And that is what worries me slightly because I think, you know, even though we probably will never see a game when all four of our back four are making mistakes consistently throughout the game again for the next five years, all of the mistakes, probably with the exception of Brandon Williams, to be fair, all of the mistakes that those individuals made are mistakes that they types of mistakes that they have made before. You know, you talk about Harry Maguire being a bit yeah. jittery on the ball, Victor Lindelof not being strong enough, not reading the game quickly enough. Think of wan not being good enough on the ball when he's under pressure. These are consistent things that they need to work on. It's not to say that they're a lost cause at all. They yeah. can be improved upon. But it is a little bit of a worry to think that there are, individually, there are mistakes yeah. that are starting to repeat. Yeah. Right, we, we should move on to talk about the, the team selection and the hair soon. But the, the goals itself, and I also want to talk about uh, Paul Pobber actually, but the, the goals itself, let's let's go through them quickly oh, first. Mate. Goal number one, primary blame. Oh, Lindelof. I, I mean, I know you could say De Gea yeah. it does better, but I put none of that goal on David De Gea. He shouldn't even be needing nah. to make a save at that point. And uh, to be honest, any goalkeeper that saves a shot from four yards out, I say great save, even if it was straight at them. The reflexes you need to do that, great save. Yeah. I mean... Olivier Giroud has, has has made his career, his entire career is based on making the run across the front post and then doing those flicks into the near post from low crosses. As soon as Azpilicueta makes that run, yeah. I think every single person watching the game could see that Giroud was making that run. If I can see that as someone who has no experience playing football beyond Sunday league and like amateur level football, there is no excuse for Victor Lindelof not to see that. He even, as Giroud runs across him, he even slows down to let Giroud go across him so that they, their feet don't get tangled up. I'm, I'm sorry, what? Look, get your body in front of him. Get yeah. your shoulder in there. Get an arm across the front of him. You know, it, it, that, uh, that, I mean, that was just an awful piece of defending. It really was. <laughs> yeah, I said we go through the goals quickly, but I, I, I do, th- it, 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 it would be mad to, I found it mental that people were were blaming De Gea for that one because this was before he'd, yeah. he'd made a, a massive error for the second goal. But it was as if people are people are searching for De Gea mistakes, and you don't need to search that hard because he's he's making them cop regularly enough that, that you don't you don't need to look for them. Um, and this was one where it, it just we have seen him make that save before, but that's when he's been at his very very best. To expect him to save yeah. that is crazy. It's from like two two meters out. Um, would would be really difficult. Goal number two, David De Gea's fault, of course. 
But, and, and we're going to talk about De Gea, so we're not later, we're, we're not just letting him off, but um, the, Mason Mount starts running running through. Um, he's still got to beat Maguire and Lindelof. And Maguire's on the left, so on Mason Mount's right, he's on the left, and Lindelof is on the right-hand side. Um, Lindelof doesn't go towards Maguire for some reason, to Mason Mount for some reason. He he stays not in between him and the goal, so the shot's always going to get away. And and the reason it seems is because Lindelof is thinking about someone running down the wing. Now, if he just looked over his shoulder, he would have noticed there was no one running down the wing. Absolutely no one there. And even if he, even if there was, he could have stepped over, and Maguire could have dealt with Mason Mount and sorted out him, and and sorted him out and, and stopped him from having a shot. And as it was. Both of them were, were completely useless. None of them looked at the space around them. None of them made the decision. Um, and they both stood there like complete lemons while Mason Mount shot. It was a good shot. It was a terrible effort at a save. Um, so it was De Gea's fault, but the, the shot shouldn't have even got there in the first place. It, it honestly wasn't until I'd watched the replay that I realised quite how bad the defending was. Because I think watching it, obviously it comes from a, a bad Brandon Williams pass across the pitch. So your focus is on that, and then all the focus, quite predictably and understandably, focuses on the, the De Gea howler. But I mean, what is Lindelof yeah. and Maguire, to be fair? What are they doing in that situation? Because yeah. I literally just watched it back again right before we started recording. Because it looks like Lindelof is trying to stop a runner coming round on the outside. And Giroud is relatively close, but he isn't making that run yet. No, not at all. And he's also not very fast, so you'd back Lindelof to get over there yeah. anyway. But there's also Fred as well, who is just behind Mount and very close to Giroud, who is there to track yeah. that run if it gets made. Well, they- And then he also has Maguire on the cover. If he's one-on-one, I can maybe understand backing off a little bit because he doesn't want to dive in and then leave him one-on-one yeah. with De Gea. But he has Maguire right there. It, I think it was honestly a perfect example of how... We've talked before about how certain centre-backs can be really good individually, just not quite work as partnerships. Yeah. And others can be not great individually, but their games complement each other. And I think that was a good example of how Maguire and Lindelof don't quite work as a partnership. Yeah, and to be fair, when, when Bayer was on the pitch, he was doing quite well. There were a few a few hairy moments, as there, there always yeah. are with Eric Bayer. And there were a couple of moments that, that brought a smile That's to your face when I think he did a, a little Maradona 360 to get away from some pressure. Um, it, and, and then he got injured and, and that half summed Eric Bailly up, uh, unfortunately. And it, it sounds like he's okay. Um, he's tweeted that he's okay, but I, I, I don't think we'll be seeing him play uh, against West Ham and probably not against Leicester either. But yeah. And then the third goal is kind of similar themes. Wambasaka lets lets the cross come in. Was really poor. He he stood up to to try and play the offside line and and didn't and and let the cross come in when when he shouldn't have done. And then Maguire kicks it into his own net terribly. I I I mean I I have no explanation for that. But again, um, and De Gea again is is blamed for for letting that in. He could have saved it, maybe, but the, I wouldn't put the blame there. But again, the blame can just be shared out amongst so many people. Lindelof is between Wambasaka and Maguire. If you feel free to go and watch it back, Lindelof is between Wambasaka and Maguire, and he isn't doing anything because he's not blocking the shot. He's not marking uh, Rudiger. He's he's not doing anything. He's just standing there, kind of following the ball in, in some kind of area. He's not marking anyone. He's not marking a certain area. He's not blocking the the shot. He's not blocking the cross. He's just standing there. Um, so I think basically what we're saying is that it's the blame can be shared out very very evenly. Um, we should talk about the team selection soon. Yeah, I mean, not not so much more to add from me. I think, as I said, it was a 
a calamity of errors that we probably will never see so many individual people making so many errors on the same day. You've got to laugh. It does happen. Yeah, you do. And you honestly, you just have to hope that when games like this roll around that they're not important. Annoyingly, it happened for us in an FA Cup semi-final and not away at Burnley on, you know, the 12th of September or something when there's time to recover from it. But yeah, at the end of the day, they they do happen, unfortunately, um, and you just got to try and deal with it whenever they do do come around and improve. And that will be the challenge now for United and for Solskjaer in particular is to you know put the fire up their asses and to make them yeah. come back even stronger against West Ham and not repeat that kind of performance. Yeah, we did. We got a question from Cairncross who said we spent 150 million on the defense. Does another 150 million fix it? You would have to hope so, um, because with 150 million, you should be able to buy a good left back and a good centre back. Yeah, and the very that's least. what United need. They need a they need a good partner for Harry Maguire and perhaps an upgrade on Luke Shaw, um, and they need a, a good defensive. And then maybe another centre back to to uh, be a backup as well yeah. to Maguire and whatever new centre back yeah. brought in. Because as much as I like Eric Bailly as a player, he can't be trusted with injuries. Yeah, absolutely not. We won't, we won't talk about it anymore because I think after the season ends, we'll probably look more at United's situation in the transfer market. So we'll, we'll discuss about that more yeah. in a future episode. Now, team selection. I said at the very start, United have to get top four. And, and after Leicester were, were beaten again, um, Tottenham have become another team who have done us a favour joining the, the long list, uh, which is primarily formed of, of Sheffield United um, but United do have to get top four but winning trophies was was what it was about and that is why you enter the Champions League is so that you can try and win the Champions League so Solskjaer's team selection proved to be wrong uh, he tried and failed to cope with the difficult schedule it was a, an error um, but the, the the one thing that I took out of it was obviously that there weren't that many changes made um, and Williams started over Shaw because of injury reasons the system's something else, but the the one thing I picked out particularly, um, I'll let you talk about the system a bit more, Jack, but United just couldn't cope without Pogba in midfield no, at the start no until way. he came on. And it was it, it, it was something that I, I think I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, but I think hasn't been quite so obvious. But when Pogba's not playing, there's there's no one who can link the defence and the attack. And it seems such a, a simple way of putting it, but Fred doesn't, Fred can can take the ball in, he can control it well, and he can play a simple pass. But he can't get United out of trouble when they're trying to play out from the back. And that's what United tried to do against Chelsea, is, is play out from the back. And, and Fred just didn't have the, the required quality. That's not really Matic's job. He can sometimes do it, but it's not really his job. You need that, that midfield partner to Nemanja Matic to be able to have the quality of Pogba to receive the ball and then shove someone out the way and dribble with it or ping a pass forward and, and, and move it. And and Fred just didn't have that. And I think that was really noticeable against Chelsea. And it put the defence under more pressure. It put Maguire and Lindelof and Wambasaka and Williams under a lot more pressure. And that, that was the thing I took about took out from it. But the the three at the back was, was interesting as well. Obviously, a tactic that's worked in big games before. Social went back to it. Was was that the right decision? Well, before I before I talk about the system, I just quickly want to pick up on what you were saying too, in that I think we need some serious work on both how to execute a high press and how to play against one. Because in the last week, we've seen twice against Southampton and Chelsea, we've effectively been penned back in unable to get out of our own half for large portions of both games against Southampton and Chelsea because we're unable to play through a high press. And then you also see us occasionally try and play a high press ourselves 
And we're just unable to do it. It's one person sprinting forward, maybe one other person sort of giving a token jog to go along with it. And then it creates massive gaps for the other team to play through. You look at the way Chelsea and Southampton did it against us. It, you, they yeah. hunt in packs of threes and fours, but they also don't sprint entirely and make it really easy to play through. It's a very controlled move up the pitch <clears throat> that makes it very difficult to create gaps to play through. Um, and I think that it's something we really need serious work on, but in both defending ourselves and trying to go forward. In terms of the system, yeah. To be fair, I, I felt for Solskjaer a lot in this team selection. We spoke last week about the dilemma that he would have, and I honestly don't think there was any perfect answer. I mean, without meaning to find excuses for United, the schedule really stiffed us. I mean, Chelsea played it in the was last mad, week. Yeah. Yeah. Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday, and without any conflict or any reason to play us on Monday, purely for TV reasons, we were put <laughs> on Monday, and then Thursday, and then Sunday, yeah. which was was quite maddening to be honest. But I mean. It's no excuse for the, the mistakes we made, but it definitely made a difference. I didn't have a problem with Solskjaer rotating. I, I spoke last week that on balance, I probably thought rotating for the Chelsea game was a better option than rotating for the Palace game. The The problem I had with the team selection was more that we changed the system as well as the, the players. I just think Solskjaer, it seemed anyway, got sucked into thinking what's worked against Chelsea and what has worked against other big teams before. It's been three at the back of that yeah. split striker system. But that isn't what the team that we are at the moment. We're, we're a team that's been thriving playing this 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 formation. And to me, I, I, I think the if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, to go back to that old cliche and plug new players into that existing system. And then if it doesn't work, change it. I don't think it needed to be changed so yeah. much from the start. Again, I, I have a lot of sympathy well, for Solskjaer because it, it was a pretty awful situation. We were clearly fatigued. He needed some rotation, but I think I probably would have rotated the same as he did, but stuck with the same formation that we had had and tried to, to play a bit of a different game because I think it just allowed Chelsea so much space think, to play out from the back. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I, th- I think I, I have a lot of sympathy for him. And to be fair, I, I think playing three at the back was it could have easily been proved the right decision. By getting injured was was tough. I think one thing United really struggled with was when they did manage to play out from the back, Chelsea would just get the foul straight away, which was and it, and it wouldn't yeah. be a yellow card, but I think the ref handled that again, not to make excuses, but I think it, it was one of those where Chelsea had been sent out and, and said, just take the, the little niggly foul, do it. You won't get booked and break up United's attack. And I think that happened uh, like a lot. I think I think there were 18 fouls or something in the first hour from Chelsea. So yeah. there, there's all of that. I think where the blame does lie for, for Solskjaer, Phelan, Carrick, McKenna is United really paid for the lack of rotation, not in the Chelsea game, and not in the Crystal Palace game, but in the weeks before that, we we said yeah. f- two unchanged lineups, three unchanged lineups, four unchanged lineups. Great, we know what our strongest team is, but as it has been proved, it it didn't help us in in the long run. And there's a reason that that teams don't normally start with five games with the same team in a row because it, it's just not sustainable. And it and it wasn't. Yeah. And what needed to happen is 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 both players needed to get a rest, but also. You needed to bring players like Igalo and James and, and Williams in so that when they did have to play in a game, whether it was the most important of the week or the second most important of the week, they were ready for it. They were they were ready to, to properly get going. And and they weren't. Dan James was again really, really disappointing and nothing stuck. Um 
And that was an area where United missed Martial, actually, because his hold-up play has been really helpful recently. And it, it would have been really helpful had he had he started the game there. So it, it's not, I think the, the, the real blame I have is not rotating before. Um, we we should move on to talk about David De Gea and Dean Henderson. Um, I just I don't want to. I just want to add one more thing about the um, the rotation stuff. Yeah. The, I think actually the the lineups and the benches of the semi final. I think actually paint a great picture of the difference between us and Chelsea at the moment. In that I think if you put our strongest eleven on paper and Chelsea's strongest eleven on paper, I think ours actually quite comfortably is stronger. But then look at the benches. I think you could pick out at least five or six players on Chelsea's bench who, if you put them into the starting lineup instead of the players they would likely replace, their Chelsea's team would not get much worse. You think of Tammy Abraham, Olivier Giroud, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, yeah. Mason Mount. You think of Christian Pulisic, Willian, Hudson-Odoi, and, uh, and well, I guess he didn't play with two wings, but Hudson-Odoi, maybe Reese James, who was playing at, at wing-back. You think of Christensen yeah. and Zuma. All of these players could come in. Or the, Pedro is another one as well. You think of all those players who could come in, and Chelsea wouldn't suffer very much. But then you look at yeah. our bench, or, or the players that we brought into the game, and then you have the likes of, Fred versus Pogba, we lose out on a lot. Look at Dan James versus Greenwood, we lose out on a lot. You look at Igalo versus Martial, we lose out on a lot. Look at Juan Mata yeah. versus Fernandez, we lose out on a lot. I could keep going on and on and on. Almost every play, almost every position, Chelsea, although I don't think their 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 best player is as good as ours in most positions. They yeah. have two players for almost every spot in their starting eleven who are pretty much the same level, which makes rotation yeah. a lot easier. We just simply yeah. don't have that at all anywhere across and the it, pitch. It's been a, a glaring weakness for for most of the season. To be fair, it's not, it's not something new, um, and, and it, it was obviously really hard to dif- to, to deal with. But they they didn't deal with it as, as perhaps as as well as they they could have done. Um, no. Right, let's talk about the hair. And and I think what's what's more worrying as well is that. This is exactly what happened to us last season as well at the end of the season. When we found the formula that worked and the t- players just looked shattered by the end of the season. Yeah, they, they, they do look really tired and that, that applies to all of them. Not not just the defenders who made mistakes, but also uh, the rest of the team. Um, De Gea and Henderson, we're going to talk a couple of minutes about this, uh, not too long. We have spoken about them before. The only thing I'd say is, I think for me now, United can't afford to let Dean Henderson go back on loan to Sheffield United. I think it's not that he has to start ahead of David De Gea, but United need to push their goalkeeper on to improve, not let him stagnate and then head into a decline. And having a very ambitious Dean Henderson behind him, Henderson has a a long-term contract um, at the club. He's not going to leave on a free anytime soon. Having him pushing De Gea on and possibly taking his place in the starting lineup if it's necessary, I think would be good. Um, we got a few questions from from Daz and Ike about this, so we're not going to read them out. But this is we're answering your questions now. Yeah, as soon as we tweeted out after the game for questions, I think we got about fifteen responses all about De Gea and Henderson. Quite understandably, I think I was leaning. I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about about this at the end of the season when we sort of look ahead. As I don't think it's worth talking too much about it right now, but the one thing that I would say is Man United are a team who, despite the terrible performance yesterday, are on the up at the moment. It's one of the few times in the last few years that we have been on the up and that the green shoots of recovery are starting to be seen. And I think in that process of becoming a team that we can hopefully return all the way to the top, there cannot be any room for sentimentality. I think you have to be ruthless. You have to say... Is this person going to help us in the next two years, three years? And if the answer is no, then you do something about it. Football, as, as with all other sports, 
to use a, a terrible cliche, it's a what what have you done for me lately kind of sport. And unfortunately, despite the, the almost a decade yeah. of amazing service from De Gea, he hasn't done much for us lately. Um, and so I, I think if if Henderson wants to come back, I think it's hard to say no. And I think you you almost have to just take the bullet of probably having an unhappy De Gea on the bench because I don't think there can be any room for sentimentality to say, well, De Gea has been a great servant. He deserves another chance. I think he's had all the chances he deserves. Yeah, I think I think you still start the season with De Gea as your number one and Henderson as the backup. And I think if you say to Dean Henderson, you're going to be our goalkeeper and this is where finishing top four helps as well. You're going to be our goalkeeper in the Champions League this season. That's six games guaranteed and you're going to play in the Cups. You're going to play in the League Cup and FA Cup. And if the situation arises where De Gea makes another one or two mistakes, you will come in and replace him and it will then be his job to knock you off your perch rather than the other way around. I think if you say that to him, it, I think he's going to going to take the opportunity to, to try and become United's number one as soon as he can and, and therefore England's number one, especially with the, the Euros coming up as well. So I think that that's how I'd go about it. There's, what, there's one interesting um, stat I saw over the weekend, which was uh, goals prevented, which is a, a stat from Opta, which is basically how many goals a goalkeeper's stopped that should have been goals that, that you wouldn't expect them to save. Um, and it was interesting because De Gea stopped. De Gea's goals presented were were one in 2015-16, five in 2016-17, and then a ridiculous 14 in 2017-18. That incredible season where he was just uh, probably the best goalkeeper in the world. Now, their number has been zero for the last two years. So there has been a, a great decline there. But I think the point of this was that he had one amazing season in 17-18 and there's been a bit of decline, but compared to 16-17 and 15-16, this is not so um, not so different. Uh, so it, it, it's something interesting that hopefully someone will look at in more detail whether 17-18 was kind of a, an anomaly for David De Gea or whether it's just been a really sharp decline since then. Um, I also checked the uh, the stat on how many fouls Chelsea committed. It was 21 fouls in the game, but no yellow cards. Uh, we should move on to talk about uh, the U teams shortly. Anything else to add, I think the, just one one more thing for the, um, the Dean Henderson front. Um, I think a, a lost part of this narrative about the Henderson-De Gea conundrum is actually Dean Henderson's preference too. I think Henderson has probably earned the right to say what he would prefer to do next season. If United say to him, okay, you're going to come in, you'll play the Champions League and the Cups and have a chance to beat De Gea for the number one role, or you can go back to Sheffield United and play every game for the season. And But with the knowledge that we will bring you back, say, at the start of the 2021-2022 yeah, season I as just, our number I, one, I, don't think any, I actually think Henderson has, has earned the right to make that choice himself. Because if I was in his position... Especially with the Euros coming up. I don't think up. any ambitious player can choose to to not take the opportunity to become the number one at United. And and he is incredibly ambitious and, and would probably back himself to to overtake the hair into that role. But I I also think it's worth mentioning the step up from Sheffield United to Manchester United is still massive. And it is a really, really big decision for Solskjaer to make. But I think bringing back as the cup goalkeeper and saying you can replace De Gea gives everyone involved that kind of time and flexibility to make sure that the club take the right decision. Yeah, I I mean, I totally agree about about the ambition, you know, and Henderson is also seems to be a very confident player as well. And so you're right that he probably would back himself to to beat out De Gea. Um, I, I just think it, you know, there's we we often think about 
in terms of transfers and that kind of thing, players being sort of just pawns in the game of big clubs dealing with each other. And I think to a large degree, they can be like that very often. But I think in this case, there is still a yeah. human element. Right, we should move on to uh, youth roundup, some news on some transfers, and then we'll preview the final two Premier League games of the season. Manchester United have announced their academy intake for the 2020-21 season. This is where we find out who's been promoted from the under-16s into the under-18s and who has been signed from domestic clubs or from abroad. Um, first, the uh, promotions, Amari Forson and Shola Shortire are probably the, the most exciting of the under-16s to come up into the under-18s. Forson was signed from Spurs not too long ago. He's made sporadic under-18s and under-19s appearances already, including in the FA Youth Cup. And Shortire is a a small but ferocious and talented forward. He's, he really is small, um, but really good. He became the youngest player in UEFA Youth League history last season at the age of 14. He's one of the youngest players to ever play for the under-18 and was a starter in the FA Youth Cup, so there's high hopes for him. There's also defenders Reese Bennett and Oliver Kilner. The latter suffered a, a really bad injury not so long ago, so it's nice to see him recover and now progress onwards. And the final one promoted is Daniel Polakowski, who has been at the club since he was nine. He's a goalkeeper. And the signings, two domestic incomings, both from Sunderland. Joe Hugel is a striker who's played semi-regularly for the under-23s and scored two. He was wanted by a lot of clubs, uh, United's rivals included, Arsenal as well. And it was Arsenal who provided the toughest test to sign Logan Pye as well, also from Sunderland, but a talented defender this time. Both good signings, both 16 years old. Then from abroad, there's Czech Republic goalkeeper Radek Vivek, the latest in a long string of goalkeepers signed from Eastern Europe. Uh, I believe most were scouted by United scout over there, Piotr Wadowski. Huge influx of Polish and Czech keepers in recent years. Matej Kovar, Alex Fogitek, Andre Masny. Matej Kovar is probably the, the best prospect out of those, but it'll be fascinating to watch all of them develop at United. And finally, these are transfers that haven't been announced by United, but I can tell you they, they will be once the club and the players have international clearance. They have been completed as far as I understand. Two Spanish fullbacks, a Barcelona right-back called Mark Gerardo. He's 16 years old. I did reach out via a friend um, to some people in Barcelona to ask about Gerardo, but they said they just haven't seen enough of him yet. He's too young, so they can't make a judgment. Um, I'll let you know what I think of him when I watch him next season. Then there's Real Madrid left-back Alvaro Fernandez. Fernandez Carreras, 17 years old and not a player that Real Madrid wanted to let go. They offered him a new deal, but his contract ran out and United have convinced him to come to Manchester. And then there's Tromso forward, Isaac Hansen Aaron, only 15 years old. He made his senior debut for Tromso recently. Astonishing. And he's the reason that United played against Tromso in pre-season last year as part of that deal to bring him to Carrington. Right, Jack, West Ham up first on Wednesday. Another very short break and uh, another difficult test. West Ham are, are basically safe, um, which means they, they probably won't be trying as hard, but it's David Moyes against Manchester United again. And West Ham are, are in really good form, actually. Eric Bailly is unlikely to play due to concussion precautions. It's it's another really hard one because it, the whole question was, who do you rest players for Palace or Chelsea? But I think we kind of forgot when we were talking about that, that there's another two games to play as well very soon after. It, it is really going to be difficult and United are going to have to grind out these final two games, first against West Ham and then against Leicester. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very tough because as we spoke about last week, every single game... Is important now and and a must win. I mean, Leicester Leicester losing to Spurs helped because, as much as I don't want this to be the case, two draws is enough now for United to get top four. Yeah. But the fact that we can afford to have two draws doesn't diminish the importance of either of these games. Um, 
because you know if you then go to West Ham and beat them, say we say we beat West Ham two nil, that then means that we could potentially lose to Leicester one nil on the final day and still get top four. So it's one of those things. Every game is important. It's, it is really really hard to rest to rest players in this. I mean, the one that I think needs to rest more than anyone anyone else is Bruno Fernandes. I think we've seen a massive drop off in his performances in the last ten days or so, and the fact that he still picked up the man of the match award against Crystal Palace was an absolute <laughs> joke. Yeah. But he needs to rest more than anyone. But he's also our, probably our most important player, <laughs> and I, I can I can understand why Solskjaer is afraid to drop him because we look like a completely different team when it, either when he's not on the pitch or when he's not at his best. Yeah, I think so. I honestly. I think I'd rest him against West Ham because I, I think you, you can bring him off the bench and I, I think he's good enough that he'll make the difference. If if you bring him on with half an hour left, he'll make the difference. I think you, you, you yeah. start with Pogba, then you've still got a bit of creativity in there. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are there are so many players who need rest. And, and to be fair, as, as bad as we've been for much of the season against... Yes, I, I, I'd actually agree. I think I'd much rather have him fresh for the final day against Leicester if we need to pull out a good result there, which we will, than to force him into a lineup against West Ham and have two bad performances from him, potentially. Um, and to be fair, as bad as we have been against deep blocks I for much of the season, I think Juan Mata is still a good option for those games yeah, if we need I think him. It's- um, he still if can you, offer quite a bit. If you build your attack around Mata, then I mean, who knows what form he's in? Um, but it's 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 a possibility. If if United want, they they're going to yeah. be against the West Ham team that are, are sitting back. You could have Mata at ten, uh, solid midfield behind of McTominay and Pogba. You give Matic a rest, and you've 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 got some nice partnerships between Pogba and Mata, and then and then Rashford, uh, Martial, and Greenwood, um, and then hopefully you get to take a couple of them off after the game's wrapped up. It, it's a it's a really difficult one, but I think United still do have some options. Um, where are United going to finish? Not score predictions, but where are they going to finish? I think if, if Leicester had beaten Spurs, I would be very, very, very nervous going into this week because then we would need two wins to get through. And despite the fact that the results haven't dropped off massively, the performances have dropped off a lot in the last seven to ten days. After Leicester losing to Spurs and now us needing two draws and potentially if we beat West Ham, even a defeat against Leicester could be enough. I think you'd have to say fourth because I I don't I almost don't want to say this, but I can't see us only getting one point from these or yeah, one point from these last two games, which is the only thing that would stop us from getting top four. Yeah. I mean if if our one point came against Leicester, then we would oh no, we yeah, we'd we'd finish below them on goal difference when because we, we're we're exactly level on goal difference and points now. But obviously if we lost the West Ham, yeah. the goal difference would, would suffer. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think we'll f- I think yeah. we'll finish. So that's what I mean. If we beat if we beat West Ham at all, yeah, any points against West Ham, and, and we should be, um, yeah, we should be finishing fourth. It's also just a weird situation by the fact that we we play Leicester on the final day because we could actually. So if we get two points from these final games, we're guaranteed to get top four. But we could actually get three points from these final two games and not get top four if we beat West Ham one nil and then lose to Leicester two nil, which is quite a weird scenario. Yeah, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a sort of quirk of of the scheduling and how the seasons work yeah, out. Yeah, that's true. So we could, we could finish in the top four with sixty four points, 
but not finish in the top four on 65. Yeah, strange, strange. Um, right, yeah, exactly. we should wrap things up there. Thank you as always for listening to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. We'll be back once the Premier League season has ended at the very, very end of July. As I said at the start, this is um, perhaps not the most dramatic in in on the football pitch, but certainly the most extraordinary season of, of, of football in our lifetimes. Uh, thank you as always for listening. For more from us throughout the week, you can find Jack on Twitter at and you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. Send any questions you want us to answer for next week and any bigger questions you want us to answer when we review the whole season and look ahead to the Europa League, which we still have to play. Have a great week. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you choose to listen on. Enjoy United's last two games of the season if you can. Goodbye. Network.